case, I'll say a few words of introduction. The Christian faith begins with forgiveness. Our life in Christ begins when we recognize that our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins. And we recognize that Christ alone can supply our need. This is our message. The forgiveness we need is found through faith in Jesus Christ. And many of us at one time or another will be tempted to doubt this message, to meet this message as skeptics. For one reason or another, we are tempted to doubt that it applies to us. You see, some of us may doubt that we have any need for forgiveness at one time, perhaps, or in all of our life. Others will doubt that Christ can meet our need because our need is so great. But in the passage before us, Jesus himself gives us a clear and strong argument to persuade us against these doubts. Gives us a clear and strong argument by which he shows us that he has authority to forgive sins. And by which he encourages us with the assurance that all who come to him in faith will receive that forgiveness. So if you found your place in your Bibles in Luke chapter 5, let me ask you to follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Father in heaven, as we come to your word, we ask, O Lord, that you would open our minds and soften our hearts to receive it with faith. Make us like the paralytic and his friends. Let us not be like the Pharisees. May we come to your word, and as we see your Son, Jesus Christ, through it, may we come to Christ and acknowledge that he indeed is the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And in this acknowledgement, Lord, may we be those who will stop at nothing to come to him, who will let nothing hold us back from embracing him by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this text before us, Luke guides us to the center of it with literary artistry. Let me help you to see it by giving you an outline that will help you to handle, to take hold of the text as if it has handles, so to say. First, we will see that Jesus is the teacher in the midst of 
the teachers. Then we will zoom out and see men in search of Jesus the healer. And as they seek and find an ingenious way to bypass the crowd into the midst of the room where Jesus sits, we'll stop and share in everyone's thoughts about faith and forgiveness. This is our third heading then, thoughts about faith and forgiveness. And finally, we will see the result of Jesus' work as the people worship God for what they have seen. So our four headings are these. The teacher among the teachers, men in search of the healer, thoughts about faith and forgiveness, and doxology to the one who forgives. So as the text opens, then Luke draws our attention to the teacher among the teachers. Jesus is teaching in the presence of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This phrase is not Luke's normal way to refer to this second group. Normally he calls them scribes, or he sometimes refers to them as lawyers. Only here, and once in the book of Acts, and once more in the book of 1 Timothy, do we see this term as a reference to this group of people. Here, Luke is drawing our attention to the fact that these scribes are teachers, and he draws our attention to the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes together have taken the position of teachers in this room. You see, in that day and age, a teacher would sit when he taught. He wouldn't stand before everyone. And here, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are sitting They've come from all over Galilee, from all over Judea, from even as far as Jerusalem. Presumably, they heard the reports that we ended our text last week with, that report that went out through all the country about the things that Jesus had done, particularly in the cleansing of this leper. And as crowds were coming, this group of teachers said, we're going to come too. But it's evident that they haven't come for the same reason as the crowds. They haven't come because they somehow need healing from some illness or some uncleanness. Nor have they come in order to be taught by this teacher. They've come and assumed the position of teachers that they might watch this young upstart. They might keep their eye on him and observe him and see what he is saying and what he is doing. They've come to evaluate him. We've seen a similar scene before in the Gospel of Luke. If you recall Luke chapter 2, in verse 40 and following, when Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, came into the temple, he took his seat in the midst of the teachers. And there he answered questions of the teachers, and he amazed them with his understanding. We're going to see other ways in which that text is connected with our own. But the main thing that I want you to see is that in both texts, the question at the center of the text concerns who this man is. In Luke 2, it was this boy, this 12-year-old Jesus, who understood that he had to be doing his father's will, that he had to be in his father's place. Here, it's Jesus as an adult who understands what his father's will is for him, who understands who he is, and is going to invite these teachers and the crowd around him, and those of us who are reading this text, to acknowledge it as well. But these teachers haven't come to learn that lesson. Luke indicates that in a subtle way, the way that they came to consider him, the way they came to evaluate them, and the way that they took that seat to observe him as though they were the teachers to evaluate this teacher. 
And Luke adds one more note in order to set the scene for us. He tells us at the end of verse 17 that the power of God, the power of the Lord, was with him to heal. This is a way, a characteristic way, that Luke speaks about the Holy Spirit's empowering work in Jesus' life. You see, we've already seen to this point an emphasis in Luke's gospel on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit rested upon him at his baptism in Luke 3, 21 and 22. And then when he went into the wilderness to be tempted, it was the Spirit who led him there. And then the Spirit who led him out of there to Galilee to do ministry. And in his first recorded sermon in Luke's gospel, he declared, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news. But Luke also indicates the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in a more subtle way very often by referencing the characteristic attributes that he communicates to his people. The most common one is the word power. We saw it in Luke 1.35 when the angel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The two statements are synonymous and they show for us at the outset of Luke that often Luke will refer to the Spirit in these kinds of ways as the power of the Most High. And we'll see that again at the very end of Luke's Gospel when Jesus tells His disciples, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Acts makes it clear that that power from on high is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Luke indicates the Spirit's empowerment with this phrase, the power of the Lord was with Him to heal. Now that might be confusing, and so let me explain. There were times where the Spirit did not empower Christ to heal. You might say, well, Christ, isn't He God? Could He not heal of His own power? The answer is yes, He is God, and He could technically speaking, act as God. And yet, in his incarnate life, he came to live as a man. With all of the restrictions, if you will, that come with being a man. He did not avail himself of his divine power, but he relied in everything on the Holy Spirit. And so, for instance, in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, we read phrases like this, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. There were times when the Spirit did not work in Jesus to heal many people or to do any great miraculous deed. But this is not one of those times. And so with this word, with this phrase, with these words, Luke primes us. He sets us up to expect several things in the text before us. On the one hand, in the picture of the Pharisees, we've come to expect confrontation. Conflict will ensue. On the other hand, in this picture that we have of Jesus, with the power of the Spirit upon Him, we expect some kind of miraculous work, some kind of healing. And we won't be disappointed. And so, Luke then takes our attention outward. If you could imagine this scene the way a movie director might film a a scene on a set. The camera begins in the center of it all. We're looking at Jesus in the midst of the teachers of the law. And then suddenly we shift cameras and now we're outside the building. We're outside the crowd and our vision is cast upon several men. We don't know how many who are carrying on a stretcher, a paralyzed man. And they're searching, they're trying to find, but they're unable to find a way through the crowd. The crowd is so strong and so great that they can't bypass them to get to Jesus in that moment of need. 
but they were not deterred. They made a way through the tiles of the roof. The roof proved a, more, a less impenetrable barrier than the crowd itself. And so they make that way, and they begin to remove the tiles of the roof, and they begin to lower this man on his stretcher down into the midst of them before Jesus as he sits with the teachers of the law. There's a load of irony here, for the man in need of healing struggled to reach the one who had power to heal. But the scribes and Pharisees had no trouble getting the front row pew. They were there, and yet... This man who was on the outside, who had to make such a great effort to get in front of Jesus, he's the one who understands who it is, who he's coming to see. The guys in the front row, the people who should know, the teachers of the law, they don't have a clue. They don't understand. And we'll see that as the narrative then unfolds. This leaves us then in the midst of things with this paralytic. Literally and figuratively, we are in the middle of the passage. He is in the middle of the room. Luke has drawn our attention to the center of it all. And as we come to the center, he's going to again and again emphasize one singular theme. Forgiveness is our most urgent need. And it's the need that he can supply. It's a need that Christ can supply. So we begin to think about faith and forgiveness. This should surprise us, however, for at least two reasons, what we find here. For Jesus says to these men, actually to one man in particular, after seeing their faith, he says to one man, man, your sins are forgiven. Transparently, they were coming in order to have that man healed. I doubt that they were expecting that response. They were coming to Jesus because they had heard reports and they knew what he could do. And so they brought their paralyzed friend so that Jesus might heal him. And Jesus does not say, your faith has made you well. Stand up. Go your way. Not right away in any case. But seeing their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. And in that way, he shows the urgency of forgiveness. He shows the importance of forgiveness for all that this man needed. His most significant need, one that was shared by everyone in that room and outside of it and everyone here across this whole wide world, our most significant, most urgent need is forgiveness of sins. But the Pharisees don't see that. The Pharisees don't share his perspective. They begin to question in their hearts, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, I said that this heading in in this portion of the text, I called it Thoughts About Faith and Forgiveness. And I want you to see why I focus on thoughts by asking you to turn back briefly with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verse 34 and 35. Because I want you to see how important this verse, these verses, are in Luke's gospel. They explain so much of what we will see as we pursue this gospel narrative. Here I'll remind you in this context, this man Simeon came into the temple and he took up the baby Jesus in his arms and he held him in his arms and he praised the Lord and said, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. For God had revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And then he says this prophetically to Mary. Behold, 
This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon prophesied that this boy would grow into a man who would be a revealer of the thoughts of men and women's hearts. And sometimes as we go through the gospel, we see that the word thoughts can be translated as questionings, contemplations, an internal dialogue. But it's the same terminology. It's what we're seeing here is that these men in their hearts are questioning, who is this? And they're accusing him of blasphemy. It's a very serious accusation. Matthew will show us in Matthew 26 that this is the accusation upon which the chief priest based his judgment that this man should be crucified. But they're not saying it out loud. They're thinking it in their hearts. And Jesus perceives this. He perceives their thoughts, and so he answers their thoughts and asks, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Jesus is making an argument to them whereby he invites them to think differently, to have a change of mind and a change of heart where they don't think the way that they're accustomed to think according to all of the doctrines that they've held and believed about what is possible. Now, granted, they're right about this one thing. Only God can forgive sins. They're not wrong on that point. But they need to see that that doesn't mean that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is blaspheming. And that's what he's going to show them. This question that he asks them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? On the face of it, it's a simple question, but it doesn't have a simple answer. Which is easier to say? Well, if Jesus is just talking about saying the words, they're both as easy to say. But the implication is that he says them with power. Is it easier to forgive men's sins, or is it easier to make a lame man walk? However you answer that question, let me suggest to you that in both cases, both are so difficult that only God can do them. Both tasks are so difficult that they're only things that God can do. And that's the point he wants to make. They are right to say, who can forgive sins but God alone? But they are wrong in their judgment about Jesus. For all of their watching and all their evaluation, they don't get it. Paralytic and his friends got it. They understood, and Jesus, just like he perceived their thoughts, could see their thoughts, could see their faith, and see that it really was a genuine faith that motivated them to bring their friend. But he sees into the heart of the Pharisees, and he recognizes that they're suffering from a different kind of paralysis. They have internal thoughts that question this man because they don't understand who he is. And so he's going to make a clear and strong argument to show them who he is so that they might believe. Whether or not they'll respond to that, we'll have to wait and see for later texts in Luke. But here, this is the argument that Jesus makes after he asks this question. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus withheld his healing power from that man so that through that healing power, he might at the proper time reveal something 
to all who were there. This man came in faith, but the crowd and the Pharisees, they needed to be encouraged to have that same faith, to share that same faith in this person, in Jesus Christ, in the one who calls himself the Son of Man. The Pharisees would have picked up on that reference right away. The teachers of the law would have understood that it came from Daniel chapter 7. There, let me read from you in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. And in this context, Daniel's having this wild vision where he sees all kinds of beasts. And those beasts are pictures of kingdoms that are yet to come in Daniel's day. But at the conclusion of it all, Daniel sees this in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus was claiming to be this figure, this one who Daniel sees, who is like a son of man, he's saying, I'm that son of man. Not just any human being, but I'm the son of man who is also the son of God. I'm the one who will come to the ancient of days and will receive that everlasting kingdom. So, I'm also the one, Jesus says, who has authority on earth to forgive sins. For all authority is given to him by the Father. For he is the Son of Man, who is at the same time the Son of God. And Jesus is not just making this claim with words, but he's showing it to them with power. For as he says, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home, the paralytic immediately rises up before them. And Luke is stamping his foot on the revelatory purpose of this with that word before them, making it crystal clear that all of this is happening in front of them. The man was lowered into the midst of them, and now he rises up before them so that they might see in his rising and as he takes up his stretcher and as he walks out of that room that indeed Jesus is the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. The man went away, glorifying God. And so, as we have thought about faith and forgiveness, as we've seen what Jesus did, we are also encouraged to respond rightly with worship as well. For the result of this was not just the worship of the one man, but it was the worship of the many. And you see Luke emphasize that in verse 26. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things. And the way that Luke composes this, let me give you an alternate translation that will help you to see the emphasis and the connection. Going back to, the, to verse 25, Immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God. They were filled with awe, saying, We have seen glorious things today. Three times those related words that are drawing our attention to the glory of God demonstrated through this Son of Man so that His people might receive that message with joy and worship. The one who has authority to forgive sins 
and the one who freely forgives the one who comes to him in faith. And so it should be with us. We should respond as we see the one who forgives so freely and so ably with worship in our hearts, with joy in our hearts, because this message is not just for that paralytic. This message is for us, for all who will come to him by faith. Now, I alluded earlier in the text that there are two kinds of paralysis in this text. And I want to key on this idea as I apply the message of this text to our situation today. The first kind of paralysis was obvious. The man on the stretcher could not even move himself through a crowd. He was completely dependent on others to bring him to Jesus for healing. And yet, the Pharisees suffer from a second kind of paralysis, one that is more common in our lives. It is a paralysis that threatens all of us. It's the paralysis of self-righteousness. It's the paralysis that would keep us from coming to Christ for the forgiveness that he offers. It's the paralysis that would keep us from coming in faith. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were easy to identify. They knew God's law and they zealously kept it. Nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that they did not really keep God's law because they did not understand its true purpose. They missed the point because they focused on all the external realities and never thought about the internal importance of the heart. There's a reason why we say, don't toot your own horn. That phrase comes from a practice that the Pharisees often partook in. That They would blast their horn as they put tithes in the offering box. They would blast their horn so that people would see them as they prayed loud prayers to be seen by men. They were a self-righteous brood, and it kept them from recognizing Jesus for who he is. Their primary issue was this. They trusted in the wrong person. They might have had all the right doctrine. They might have understood the law very well. They even would have recognized that God is a gracious God, and what they have, they have by grace. But when they recognized His grace, they would have recognized it like this Pharisee who prays later on in Luke chapter 18 in a parable Jesus uh, spoke. They would say, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That Pharisee acknowledged God's grace in his life. That is why he prayed. He simply thought that the evidence of God's grace was a personal righteousness that left him without need. He did not see his need for forgiveness. Forgiveness? Who needs it, he would think. Who needs forgiveness when he is fasting? I do what's righteous, he would think. So I'm good. Who needs forgiveness when he's like me? Jesus would say in that parable that that man was not justified. He was not righteous. Meanwhile, the man to whom he looked down upon, looked down on his nose at another man in that parable, a publican who beat his breast, who we sang about this morning, a publican who beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did Jesus say about that man? He went home to his house justified. Therefore, he went home forgiven of his sins. He went home having received mercy. 
but not the Pharisee. Not the Pharisee who in his self-righteousness could not see his need for forgiveness. Now, Phariseeism is easy to see in Jesus' day, but we struggle to see it in our own day. Because Phariseeism comes in many disguises, but it always shares certain things in common. First, Pharisees focus on external religion and they ignore matters of the heart. They think of godly living like a checklist. If I create the right boundaries and I have the right list and I check the box and I'm disciplined in my life, then I will be righteous before God. That's the way they think. It's what I do. It's what I do. It's all in the first person. Their trust is in themselves. And they constantly look down their nose at others. They treat others with contempt. They despise others who they regard as sinners, who they regard as beneath them. And all the while, they never realize that they're like unwashed cups, Jesus will say. That is, cups that are washed on the outside of the bowl, but the inside is left dirty. That's what they're like. They're not really clean. Their sin is odious to God. For he hates, hates hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And we are prone to do this very same sort of thing. You see, that's the thing about Phariseeism. In a book by Michael Reeves titled Evangelical Pharisees, he writes this, It is quite possible to maintain a facade of orthodoxy, but without integrity. We can profess the language of grace, but deny its nature by a prickly, severe manner or disdain for the weak. And the fact that the gospel of grace can be denied in such subtle ways only emphasizes what an elusive problem we are dealing with. John Calvin wrote that some believe there is nothing amiss unless there is open and admitted reproach or contempt of God's word. But to think like that, he argued, betrays not only a hollow and bogus faith, but a blindness to the nature of our sin. The human heart, he noted, has so many crannies where vanity hides, so many holes where falsehood lurks, is so decked out with deceiving hypocrisy that it often dupes itself. Do you hear what he is saying? I can say I am a sinner saved by grace, and I can preach and believe the gospel, but my heart may be as hard as a ten-ton anvil because I do not really see that this message is for me. And God can see the heart. Jesus can look into my heart and perceive whether it is faith that motivates me to speak in this way or whether I simply speak it because I know it from a book. If I don't really believe that I am a sinner, I merely say it, then I don't really believe it at all. The human heart is deceitful, and we so easily deceive ourselves. How can we see things as they are? How can we recognize that we really are always sinners in need of forgiving grace from our Lord? The answer is what we see in this very text. What Jesus calls his, calls his interlocutors, he calls the Pharisees to see as they behold him. He calls them to see who he is. He calls them to understand 
who it is that stands before them. And all along the path of this gospel, we are going to be called to see that. And that is what we, is going to disabuse us of any kind of self-righteousness that we might entertain. As a famous New Testament scholar once shared in this anecdote, he interviewed an older scholar who has now gone on to glory, and he asked him how he fought pride in his life. And he had accomplished so much when he was so learned. And the man stumbled for a minute with the awkwardness of that question. But then he responded succinctly, It is hard to be proud when you stand at the foot of the cross. It is hard to be self-righteous when you stand at the foot of the cross. When it, we consider that it cost the, what it cost the Lord of glory to pay for our sins, to accomplish our forgiveness, how can we look at ourselves and think, I am so righteous, God must love me. He does love me, but the proof is not because I pray and thank God for all of my personal righteousness. The proof is that He sent His Son, the Son of Man, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, to be crucified for us so that He could freely and justly forgive us of all our sins because the debt was paid by one who could pay that debt. We need to begin by seeing Jesus for who He is and then we will understand the awful cost of what He came to do. We will understand these words that we sing in the third stanza of that great hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, when we read, If you think of sin but lightly nor suppose the evil great. Here you see its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load. Tis the Word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. Our sin is so great, our paralysis so great, that this is what it took to accomplish our healing. The perfect Son of God, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness, infinite in every way, eternal and unchanging, the one through whom and for whom all things were created. He became a man and he gave his life for us that we might have life forever. And no other sacrifice would do. No one's holiness rises anywhere, anywhere near to his holiness. No one's righteousness rises anywhere near to his righteousness. And yet, he is the one who comes to make sinners righteous by faith. And that should prove to us that not one of us is so good that we have a right to look down our nose at others. We have a right to treat others with contempt. That we have a right to question God's grace to those with great sin. But rather, we all ought to be those people who rejoice in the goodness of God and glorify God for the healing that He grants and for the forgiveness that is received when sinners come to Him in faith. Let us be that kind of people, not Pharisees, but people who know the grace that we've received and so show grace to others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Indeed, it was an awful cost that you paid to make us righteous. You sent your Son, your beloved Son, your unique Son, your only begotten Son, 
because you loved us with an everlasting love. And through him and the grace that we receive through faith in him, you offer to us all salvation freely, guaranteed, definitively because of him, because of what he's done. So make us, Lord, to glorify you. Make us to rejoice in this knowledge. Make us to praise you forevermore. May we not be such people who, having known your grace once, recede back into self-righteousness and self-justification. May we not be people who forget the grace that won us. But may we ever rest in the grace that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.